I want to put something on the screen for you and just see if uh, it resonates with you. But uh, good men make good times. Good times make soft men. Soft men make bad times. And we're living in bad times. Over the course of the last handful of weeks, we've been in a series called Disciple. And if you're new with us to Stone Point, uh, we're looking at the apostles of Jesus. And then we're taking uh, what we learn about them and trying to practically apply some things in our life. A handful of weeks ago, when we kicked off this series to begin the new year, uh, we realized that these men were just common, ordinary people. Uh, They lived in the midst of bad times. It was these good men that changed the world that really created for the early church good times. But friends, what we realize is as the church progresses, it's really easy for good times to be made by good men, but good times eventually make weak men, soft men. And you just kind of find yourself in this perpetual cycle. And it's one that even now here in the States, we, we want to really break out of. Uh, One of the things that I've just put on my list this year to do is study just over the course of, uh, of history, the revivals, the great awakenings, the things that would in some ways uh, recount in my mind, but also help us even know like, hey, what is it that God is looking for as his eyes roam to and fro throughout the earth looking for someone to strongly support? And I think about... Um, these men. And as we uh, jump in today, we're going to look at yet another one. Um, A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Peter. Uh, Last week, we looked at his brother, Andrew. And today, we're going to look at a guy named James. As you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. As you're turning there, I want to welcome those that are joining us online uh, from home or from other places in the country. We're so glad that you're hanging out with us today. And as we look at James, We will learn quite a handful of things about him, but what we will know for sure is that he is not a soft man. Now, we don't know a ton about James, and I'll certainly share with you what we do know, but he is not a soft man. Matter of fact, when you think about James, uh, he is named James, or in the Greek, it's supplanter. Some would uh, transcribe that as to be the one who follows But what you're going to know about James is he is a very fiery, very passionate kind of guy. Um, I have people oftentimes in my life who are like, hey, Brandon, man, you are super intense. And I'm like, sometimes, you know, um, sometimes I'm intense. Uh, But there are many of us that we're around people and they're intense. Like they've just got a fiery, bold personality. And what's interesting is, is when we think about the apostles and we think about fiery or we think about bold, uh, we think about maybe Peter, Uh, But we see James to be different than Peter. Peter is that strong, bold, courageous man of faith, where he's also brash. He's the one that's going to do some silly, foolish things. And in some ways, maybe you see that in James as well. But what we do know about James is he is not a soft man. Let me share some other things that we learn about him in Mark chapter 3. In uh, Mark chapter 3, beginning around verse 13, it says, And he went up on the mountain... And called to him those whom he desired. That's Jesus. And they came to him. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've read Matthew's version of this. Uh, We've read um, Luke's version of this. And we're reading Mark's version today, uh, not just to change it up, but specifically because Mark is going to share something about James that 
Matthew and Luke don't, and I'll show it to you in just a sec. But Jesus calls them to him in verse 14. He appointed the 12 whom he also named apostles. And so what he does is in a multitude of people who've been following him, he appoints 12 to be his preachers. And so he takes ordinary, uneducated people, and he goes, hey, you're not just going to follow me as a disciple, but you're going to be apostles. You're going to go and proclaim the message of the gospel, the good news, how God sent his son, um, the savior of the world, to resolve himself to head to Jerusalem for the sins of those that he came to seek and to save, which were obviously lost. And out of those, he calls these 12. So he calls, verse 16, Simon, to who he gives the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. Which is interesting because this list puts James in a different place and precedence than some other lists. So some other lists will say Simon and then Andrew. Here it says the James, the son of Zebedee. And then look, it says, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is the sons of thunder. Now, just an interesting note here, James is likely listed first uh, as the sons of Zebedee because he's the oldest brother. So he's older than his brother, John. And uh, so you'll know that. And they're called Bonerges, which is the only time you see that in all the scripture, or the reference, the sons of thunder, which is the reference to this fiery, passionate group of guys. So these two brothers, James and John, are called the sons of thunder. And you might go, well, why? Well, there's a couple of inferences, which I'll show you about in just a second, as to why they, they probably derive this name. Although we don't really know much more than that. We just know that these guys are the sons of thunder. And I don't know about you, but like that would be a really cool nickname. Like if you're like passionate about the Dallas Cowboys and you got season tickets and like you walk through the front gate, they're like, oh, here's the boys, the sons of thunder. Like you just think about it, that's the rowdy guys. Um, you know, obviously... I don't know much about uh, Jason Kelsey, but he's uh, made a lot of news lately, primarily because his brother and, and all the Swifties and all that. Uh, but he's also just, he's all over everything because I guess, was it last week or the week before? I'm not sure even, but you know, he's cheering and, and they're the sons of thunder, like this fiery group, you know, uh, probably a, not the best example, but that's what you're looking at. You're looking at these guys who are the sons of thunder. The difference is, is when you get these fiery sons of thunder and they become self-controlled under the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what changes people. And so don't want to give a reference to guys I don't know, but that's, that's who these guys are as they follow Jesus. They are fiery, passionate guys. Verse 18 says that not only did he call Bonerges uh, and the two brothers the sons of thunder, but then he also called Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and then, of course, Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and then there's Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. When you look at these uh, sons of thunder, um, James, the older brother, is oftentimes called um, James the Elder, or even sometimes uh, James the Greater, as you'll hear him referenced to. And, and one of the reasons why is not just because he's the older brother, but there's often many James throughout the scripture. And so as you're reading, even through the New Testament, you'll see multiple Jameses mentioned, and you have to work pretty hard to figure out, okay, which one is which. But what's interesting about this James is in almost every case, you will find him listed right alongside of his brother. They are almost never mentioned apart. I can't, I can think of one time that they are. 
Um, and so most of the time you'll see them together. What's also interesting about that is James had a brother named John. John is the guy who is the disciple whom he would say was the beloved one. We'll talk about him next week. He writes the gospel of John, but in the gospel of John, you never see John mention his brother James one time. So his name is never mentioned. So James's name is mentioned probably 15 to 20 times and you'll see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you'll see it two times in Acts. One time in Acts, you'll see it um, because he makes the list of apostles. And the second time, you'll see it mentioned in Acts chapter 12. And I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. Um, he's a fisherman by trade. Um, him and his father uh, and, and his brother John likely worked in a business, a fishing business. And they had other men that worked. So Zebedee was a prominent man. Um, that's probably why his name is mentioned. We don't know a ton about him. Uh, but we do know that he would have been a very prominent man. And he had... Uh, as a result of being a prominent man, he had some benefits um, that probably put James and John among the elite of the followers that were following Jesus. And that's also probably much of why they thought that they should be elite themselves. Um, when you look at James, he was a, a, he was a part of the big three. The big three was Peter and then James and John, which you see in the scriptures that they, they seem to follow Jesus into places that other people couldn't. Um, you certainly in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before Jesus is going to be captured by uh, the Roman guard, Jesus encourages everyone to pray with him. Uh, Peter, James, and John are encouraged to go a little further in the garden with Jesus. And it's there that they fall asleep. And Jesus says, hey, why can't you guys stay awake for just one hour? He approaches Peter, but James and John are there. Uh, the transfiguration that we see uh, listed in uh, the Gospels, you see that James is a part of those meetings. Uh, when Jesus tells about the end of the age in Mark chapter 13, and he says that these things are going to happen. Peter, James, and John are there. Uh, there's also an inference in a time where um, Jesus is going to go heal Jairus' daughter. And he says, hey, no one's coming with me except for these three. And he takes Peter, James, and John with him to heal Jairus' daughter, whom they thought was dead. But he says, no, she's just asleep. And then he raises her from the dead. Um, the only other people that are in the room with Jesus besides Peter, James, and John were Jairus' parents. Uh, but you see that they have a, some way a level of connection that others don't. Matter of fact, it might have been that level of connection that prompted them to ask Jesus a question around um, becoming the greatest in the kingdom. In Mark chapter 10, if you remember verse 45, it says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life's ransom for many. Y'all remember that text? Um, that text is there because uh, about 10 or 11 verses earlier, beginning at about verse 35, you have a question that's posed by John and James. And the question is, is hey, can, can one of us sit at your right hand and can one of us sit at your left hand in the kingdom? Um, we know that that was a conversation that takes place with Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, listen, um, that's not my authority, but the Father's authority. But he also says, listen, if you're going to sit at the right hand or the left hand of my throne, then he goes, you know it's going to cost you something. Um, and it's interesting because the response that James and his brother had was, we know it's going to cost us something and we're willing. Oh, they were fiery and passionate, but it's also noted there in Mark chapter 10 that the other's disciples were indignant. They were frustrated and angry at the response of James and John, that you would have the audacity 
in front of all of us to ask about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so if you could imagine that these are not passive men. These are the men that changed the world. And among all of these men, there seem to be three. Peter, who we know can be a knucklehead. And then you got James and John, and they're saying, hey, what if we're the top in the kingdom? One of us serves at the right, one of you serves at the left. And I'm sure James, because he's the older brother, thought, well, as Jewish custom would have it, I get more rights than the younger brother. If you're reading along with us uh, in the uh, chronological Bible, we know that every now and then you might have a usurping where the younger takes the older's place. And sometimes that's because of trickery. Um, Jacob, and he had a brother, he was hairy. What was his name? Esau. So in this case, it doesn't seem to be any deception or trickery. I'm sure James is going, hey, I'll be at the right, and hey, buddy, you'll be at the left. But we know that the disciples are indignant. And then you might ask the question, okay, um, is that all the times they're mentioned? And the answer is, yeah, pretty much. James is also mentioned in Galatians chapter 2, along with Peter and John, Um, because they were marked by Paul as pillars of the early church. We know for sure that these men were good men, and they created good times. And it wasn't because um, they were passive, and it wasn't because they were um, out of control. These were men that Jesus obviously, after great prayer, selected for his purposes to change the world. It was the men that Jesus selected after we know, according to the Gospels, he spent an entire night praying, seeking up with the Father and the Spirit to make sure that he elected and then selected the right men for the job, to create good times so that men could thrive and that the world would be changed by the Gospel of Jesus. But I want you to understand that When you find good men, good men don't always have it together. Good men are on a progressive journey. I think that's what's so important to note is that good men become great men over time. And it's just a, it's a process. It's not something that we just arrive at. Like most of us in this room, we still have plenty of areas to grow in. Uh, Most of us in this room, we still have plenty of areas that we can excel in. We probably have a ton of areas we could grow in love and grace and humility. Probably a lot of us could grow in kindness. Some of us would do well to have some unexpressed thoughts. We don't have to say everything that we think, right? And that's these men. Matter of fact, if you got your Bible, flip with me to Luke chapter 9. Maybe you're kind of new to your Bible, and uh, obviously we were just in Mark, but Uh, The Gospels in the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So you're going to flip one book over, and you're going to come to Luke chapter 9. When you get to Luke, you're looking for the big numerals that designates chapters, and the little small numerals designate verses. So in Luke chapter 9, you're going to scroll a long way down to get to verse 51. But it's here in verse 51 that we see that the time of Jesus' death has come. In verse 51 of Luke 9, this is what it says. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, your version, if you're reading the NIV, may say taken up to heaven. That's what he's implying. The day has drawn near for him to be taken up. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And this is Jesus. 
So Jesus' ministry has come. The time of his departure is near. His death is culminating before their eyes. He has resolved himself to go to Jerusalem. And as he does so, it's interesting because he is going to go to Jerusalem by the way of Samaria. Verse 52 says, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered into the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now it's really cool because Jews don't go through Samaria and Samaritans don't interact with Jews. Jesus breaks this trend multiple times as we read through the gospel narratives. Uh, We see in uh, John chapter four, he meets with a woman at a Samaritan well. We see Jesus have times where he breaks this custom. And it's very confusing, not only to Samaritans, but it's also confusing to Jews. And the reason why is because they believe polar opposite things. Though they initially came from the same place, the Samaritans became what the Jews considered half-breeds. They were left over from the exile in the Old Testament. They intermarried. They became, in some ways, what the Jews would call a mutt, an eclectic people. And with the eclectic people that they intermarried with became eclectic ideas. It was Judaism mixed with foreign gods. And as a result of that, they came up with their own faith. And they, 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 they worshiped on Mount Gerasim. Um, they They didn't worship the same things the Jews did. And so as a result, the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans and the Samaritans wanted nothing to do with the Jews. But it's interesting as Jesus is about to go to the cross, as he heads to Jerusalem, he goes, we're going through Samaria. And as he goes through Samaria, he sends messengers ahead to prepare a place for them to potentially stay. And this is what happens. If you look at verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Okay, so here it is. He sends messengers ahead to Samaria. Jesus has already helped the Samaritans. He had stayed there after he had brought the gospel to the woman at the well. He had taught their people there. And here he goes through them. They want nothing to do with Jesus. They want nothing to do with his gospel. They want nothing to do with any of his followers. They go to try to prepare, prepare a place. And they go, uh-uh, not here, not now. And James and John are like, hey, look, we can call down fire from heaven and we can just solve all of this already. We don't like them. They don't like us. Let's just settle the matter. Let's call down fire from heaven. And that is the fiery sons of thunder. Like, let's just consume them right now. And you might ask the question, okay, what will Jesus respond? And and we're thankful because Jesus does respond. And this is what he says, but he turned to them and then he rebukes them. And then they went on to another village. And you might ask the question, why is it that Jesus rebukes these two men? And I think the reason why, and I'll say this a couple of times today, is because when Jesus is working, he works for reasons, and he works in seasons, okay? He works for reasons, and he works in seasons. And that's still true today. God is working for particular reasons, and he also works in seasons. And I'll show you more about that in a sec. But in this particular case, they are like, hey, let's just call down fire from heaven. And listen, this is not a random thing, okay? This actually is an inference 
to something that happened in the Old Testament. Now lean in with me because I'm gonna tell you a cool story and you can go and check it out for yourself in a bit. But in 2 Kings, there was a guy named Ahaziah and Ahaziah was the king, uh, king Ahab's son. King Ahab is the one who had conflict with Elijah. Um, king Ahab is the one who was married to Jezebel. Ahaziah's mom was Jezebel. Ahab had died and the kingdom had fallen to Ahaziah. Ahaziah one day is apparently up on kind of the upper courts of his palace and he falls through some lattice work on accident and he's about to die. As a result of being in really bad physical shape, he summons the God of Ekron, which is the God of the Philistines. This is 2 Kings 1. And as he summons the God of Ekron, um, to come and to get in some ways a sorcery or an enchanter or a word, a diviner to say, hey, how bad is it? Am I going to make it or not? The angel of the Lord goes to Elijah and says, hey, I want you to show up and I just want you to go give Hazariah a word. So uh, as Hazariah as, uh, sends out these messengers um, to go look for the God of Ekron and to get word from Baalzebub, B-A-A-L. Eventually you'd hear Beelzebub because the Jews renamed it. As they are searching after this diviner, enchanter, and sorcerer, all these sorcery stuff, guess who shows up? Elijah, the hairy guy. And uh, he has a word. He goes, hey, just go tell them that the word of the Lord has come to Elijah and, and I've got a message for you. So Elijah tells him, hey, Indeed, the word of the Lord has spoken and Hazariah, you're going to die. So the guys go back and they go, hey, Hazariah, uh, we did come in contact with a guy and he had a word for you and you are not going to live. And Hazariah is like, okay, well, who, who is it? I mean, wh where did he come from? Like, what is his name? Like, you know, and he goes, look, we, here's what we know. We, it's, we know that he came to us and he had a word from the Lord and he's kind of a hairy guy. And, um, and Hazariah's like, I know exactly who he is. What did he say? He says, well, you're going to die. He goes, I'll tell you what, I want you to go out. I want you to capture him. So take 50 men and Hazariah is going to put Elijah to death. And so 50 men go out to find Elijah and Elijah's sitting up on a mountain and he is ready for these 50 men. And one of the, the, the main men, kind of the leader of this legion of men comes and he goes, listen, if you are a man of God, then you need to know that you're going to come with us if you're the man of God. And, you're, and he goes, well, if I'm a man of God, as you say, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And all at once, fire from heaven came down and consumed that men, group of men. Word gets back to Ahaziah as it would pretty quickly, right? Hey, your 50 men and your leader are gone. Ahaziah, being the wise man he is, goes, hey, get 50 more and send them right back to him. And so 50 more go and the leader of those 50 men come to Elijah sitting on the mountain. He's ready for them. And he, they go, hey, listen, if you're the man of God um, that's done all this, you need to come back to Ahaziah. And guess what? Elijah's already done it once. And he goes, hey, listen, if you say I'm a man of God, then let fire from heaven come down and consume you. And all at once, fire from heaven came down and consumed them. And the next group of 50 men and their leader are gone. Hazariah, because he's a wise man, goes, hey, let's send 50 more. And so they send a third group of 50. But listen, the, the leader of the 50 was wise. And he pleaded for grace. Listen, I know what you've already done to two companies of men. Would you please, 
would you please spare us? But would you also come back to the king? And the word of the Lord went to Elijah and said, hey, go with them. And so they, they all go together. Fire doesn't come from heaven and consume this third company of men, but Elijah goes with them. And Elijah is in front of King Ahasuerus and he says, you're gonna die. And indeed he did. Now that is what James and John are wanting to do to Samaria. Elijah did it twice. They're rejecting you. Let's just call fire from heaven. And that's the inference. And so that's a very bold thing. And Jesus rebukes them. And the question is, is why does he rebuke them? And here's why. It's because Jesus clearly said that he had come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus had come to give grace to people who needed it. He came to extend the gospel to Jews and Gentiles alike, to frees, to, to free men and to slaves, to men and to women. He wanted the gospel, the good news of Jesus to be known throughout the world. And if James and John have their way in defense of Jesus, their master, then the message and that reason, that, reason, that season is distorted and changed. But these fiery men are who you see. It is probably James, the guy who has great zeal and great passion, fiery, intense, outspoken. Um, it's probably this guy that is leading the charge in many ways. And matter of fact, it's probably that zeal, that passion that leads him to Acts chapter 12. And you don't have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 12, verses one and following, it says this, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And in verse two, it says, he killed James, the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the, the days of the feast of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. It's probably the fiery nature of James that got him killed. He's the first martyr of all of the apostles. And he's the only one that is mentioned in the Bible that you know his death. He was killed by Agrippa I. Agrippa I was the uh, grandson of Herod the Great. When Jesus was born, you had the king who wanted the babies dead and Jesus and uh, his family fled to Egypt. That was when Herod the Great was in charge. Uh, it went from Herod the Great um, to Herod Antipas. And then after Herod Antipas, it fell into the hands of Herod uh, Agrippa. Uh, Agrippa I um, died in around 44 uh, AD. So we know that James's death had to have come within about the first 10 or 11 years after Christ. So the early church spreads and with about 10 years, the fiery, passionate, bold James is beheaded. And Herod Agrippa says, and we're gonna make, we're gonna make a point to do more of this. And so they're going to kill who? Peter too. But Peter, by way of a miracle, which is recorded in Acts chapter 12, escapes. And we know more that Peter lived longer than that, but that was all that's happening. You think, well, okay, these powerful men, these good men who create good times must have been protected by Jesus for long periods of time. And I would say, 
while they were certainly um, blessed by God, God used them. And we know that within a decade or just shortly thereafter, James is dead. The brother of John, the, the fiery natured friend of Peter and Andrew, the top of the three that ranked among all of them, he's gone. And you might ask yourself, okay, well, then what's the point and what do we learn from him? Well, here's the deal. I think there's a couple of things that just real quickly, I wanna share with you that we learn from him because it's not just a history lesson, but that's what it is, right? Y'all feel like that's a history lesson? And for so many of us like me, I didn't know that. Like, that's so cool. But listen, now it's like, okay, how do we help kind of apply that to us in our weak and feeble days? In the days where we need more passionate, more bold men, what do we do? And here's what I would just encourage you to do. First, it's simply this. Friends, I would love to see our church grow in greater zeal for God and others. Like he is a fiery natured, zealous guy. And I get it, well, you got Simon the Zealot. Well, Simon the Zealot was a different type of zeal. And that's what I'm gonna warn you against in just a second. But friends, I would love for us to grow in fervor towards God and a greater zeal. And I think so many of us, we in some ways don't understand what even a zeal for God looks like, but I think Paul expressed what a zeal for God looks like in the culture and in uh, the gospel, uh, or not the gospel, but in Romans chapter 12, you've got Paul writing to Rome. And in Romans chapter 12, verses three and following, he actually is praying for the Jewish people. And this is what he has to say about the Jewish people. He says this, uh, I'm sorry, that's not, that's in the second, sorry. Romans chapter 12, this is what he says. He says, for by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought. This is after he talks about being a living sacrifice in verses one and two. And he goes, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually we're members of one another. And then he says this, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. He goes, if it's prophecy in proportion to our faith, if it's service and our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in this generosity, the one who leads Hey, do it with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The encouragement to this church in Rome was to go, hey, use, use the gifts that God has given you to serve him with zeal, with fervor, with a great love for God. And when we think about the love that we should have for God, it should overflow in our and our love for one another, but also our love for the world. And, and the reason why is because we have to ask the question, well, what is the reason that God has us here? And what season are we in? Okay, Jesus came to proclaim his good news to both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, all of these people. And listen, I just want you to understand, we are still in that season. We are in what's called the church age. And the church age is this, the mystery of the gospel is made known. And the mystery of the gospel is made known to anyone who would have eyes to see and ears to hear. And as Jesus um, ascended 
he actually said, hey, you are gonna be my disciples. You're gonna be my witnesses is what he called them in Acts chapter one, verse eight. And he goes, and you're gonna go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, interesting, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what are you and I gonna do? We are going to be the church. And in the church age, we are encouraging people to repent of their sins and to follow Jesus fully. And we're encouraging people to embrace the gospel while there's still a chance. And here's why, because the, the season of the church is going to come to an end. And when it comes to an end, people will have no longer a chance to repent. No longer will people have a chance to come to the gospel because the righteous ruler, the lion of the tribe of Judah will show up and he will judge judiciously and he will separate those who know him and don't know him. And it's clearly in John chapter 10, it says he'll know his sheep and the sheep will know him because they hear his voice and they follow him. He will also say, there are many of you that were not sheep and you didn't know me. And as a result of that, you will face the fiery judgment that James and John wanted to call down. But that time hasn't come yet. And the church is in a season now where we can continue to give the good news of the gospel to those who would believe. And the church in many ways has become weak and feeble and silent. We need more bold, passionate men, not calling down fire from heaven, but giving the grace of God to others who would receive it. And I think the church has confused that because we forget what reason and season we're in. And so I think it's a great opportunity for us to display more of the kindness and the love of God. Now, listen, I am not saying that we shouldn't be set apart. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be consecrated. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be holy, but it's in our holiness that we connect more with the purposes of God in the season. It is in our holiness that we desire to see people who are unholy come to the holiness of God. It's not in our holiness and in our zeal and our passion that we mow down every adversary that gets in our way. And I think we just have to ask for the Lord's help in that. So with our zeal, one of the things I shared last week, and it was in my zeal, is that I'm like, hey, I wanna be more generous as a church. And so last week I just shared that in a couple of weeks, we're going to raise some money to help fund a good portion of our missions for this year. But in addition to just the missions that we have currently going on, there's additional things that need to be funded. A handful, uh, just last week, somebody approached me about helping with a backpack program. Just this week, as we've been praying, like, Lord, bring more needs, we were contacted uh, by Edgewood High School's Fellowship of Christian Athletes, which is a group of athletes who want to follow God more closely, and they need scholarships for sending kids to camp. And I'm like, hey, Praise the Lord. Like, yes, I think we can help with that. And so as we were talking just about that, it's like, hey, how do we help you be informed of the needs, but also how do we meet the needs? And here's the deal. As the church, there are many needs. There's benevolence needs that are happening right now. Um, there are people in our communities that have difficult things that have happened just in the last month that we could certainly help with in, 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 in some financial means. Um, there's our own kids who need help going to camp. And there are many in our own church that won't go to camp this year unless people give graciously to those needs. And so we just created a page where you could go and see what the goal, what the ask is and what the needs are. Uh, here's the ask. The ask is that we would raise $30,000 together as a church in one Sunday. Here's how we do it. In our zeal, in our fervor, we go, hey, we're going to reach down into our pockets a little deeper and we're all going to contribute as a family $200 each. Now, some of us can do more than that, and some of us may need to do a little less than that. 
But listen, all I'm asking is this, is that you would consider giving. Now, here's what I'm also asking. I'm gonna put it on the screen so you understand my ask. I am not asking for equal gifts. So I'm gonna put it for you on the screen so you can see it. I'm not asking for equal gifts. I'm asking for equal sacrifice. I'm not asking. So that means sacrifice for you looks different than sacrifice for me. And that's okay. What I'm asking is that everybody would be a part of it. That everybody would give something. Five, 10, 20, 30, $40, $50, $200, $500, $1,000, $5,000. That we would meet this need in one day. And you can go by the QR code. I'll put it for you on the screen. You can go to that QR code. And you got your picture or camera. Uh, you can just snap that. Or here's another way you can go. Stonepointchurch.com forward slash, what is that? Super Sunday giving, okay? And you can see the needs there. And you can just say, hey, here's where, that's how it's gonna be distributed. Now, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna give to that in two weeks. And if you're not gonna be here, you can give to it now or you can give to it in advance or you can give right after that. And you simply go to that page at the very bottom of that page, you can click or you can skip all that and go straight to the giving tab on our website. You can hit give and there you're gonna see a uh, super Sunday giving and you can just go ahead and give $200 or whatever it is that the Lord prompts you to give whenever the Lord prompts you to give it. But we would ask that you would be a part of that because it helps show our zeal for God and others in our giving, in our generosity, in our love, in our hospitality, in our exhortation. And as Paul mentioned in Romans 12, in our contribution shows our generosity. And that's what the church should be about. Now, here's the deal. I wanna wrap up with a couple of things because as we, have a, as we grow in zeal for God and others, I, I think it's important that you understand this second thing, and that is that you have to be careful of zeal without proper knowledge. Now, Paul, just two chapters earlier in Romans chapter 10, in verses one to three, look what he says here. He says, brothers, my heart's desire in prayer to God for them, and that's Jews living in the area that don't know Jesus. He goes, my prayer for them is that they may be saved. And this is what he said, for I bear witness them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So here's the point. He goes, listen, I know that there are people who are zealous and he knows that for sure there are loyal Hasidic or Hasid Jews that they love Yahweh completely, but they denied the work of Jesus in that, in that season. They missed the reason that Jesus came. They denied him, sent him to the cross. And that's why Peter proclaims the message of Pentecost that you have crucified the son of God. It's why Paul says, I too was zealous. I too was the elite of elite. I too was the persecutor of the church. I too was the one who I had a, a, a reconciliation meeting with Jesus. And he asked the question, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It was Paul who recognized that he had missed the reason for Jesus and he had missed out on the season that Jesus was working. As a result of that, Paul realized that his knowledge, though coupled with zeal, was off base. And friends, I think we have to just be careful in this day and age that we know that it's not merely zeal that God wants. Yes, God wants us to have a great zeal for him and others. But if we have a zeal with an improper off-base knowledge, then our zeal is out of whack. 
And listen, I, we're living in the age of the church now where there are many places, if you're not careful, that are encouraging you to have great zeal without biblical knowledge. And what it's doing even in our culture and even in our state and even in our communities is it's creating churches that are fiery and passionate about seeing God's spirit move, but sometimes in reckless ways, in ways that are not always matching with the scripture. And here's why, because we live in a day and age where we all want to feel something. We all want to see something. And we should desire to feel God move and we should desire to partner with him and see him move. But we shouldn't do it merely based off of the feeling of our heart alone. Does that make sense? And so we just need to be careful in a day and age where we just go, I wanna follow my heart. I wanna follow my feelings. You gotta be careful of that because we oftentimes can follow our heart or follow our feelings even with zeal for God and be off based. And so how do you know that what I'm being a part of is a move from God. Listen, God will never move in ways that contradict his own word. And so if God moves, then you need to look for ways that he is reflecting that just based off his word. His word is our guide. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. God does not contradict himself. He works in the same ways today as he did then. And we need to be careful though, to not manipulate, distort, or try to make him do something for our own benefit. And we just have to be careful of that, that in our zeal, we don't unmatch that with knowledge. Now, let me just give you a third warning. And that is simply this, you should guard against the knowledge that lacks zeal. You're like, okay, hold on, that seems a little contradictory. No, it's not. Okay, here's, and here's why. We live in a cancel culture. We live in a culture of five-star reviews. We review churches. We review restaurants. We review places we go. We're constantly canceling things that we don't understand, that we don't agree with. And that's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to have a great zeal for God and others. I'm asking you to be wise and to make sure that your zeal is coupled with a biblical knowledge. But here's what I also just want to encourage you to be careful of, is that you don't miss out that God is still using us for a reason and season and that there are moves of God that are happening across our country that God is in. And the longer we grow in knowledge without a zeal for God, we can become very stuffy, very judgmental people. And we can assume that if it's a large growth momentum that God can't be in it. And that's wrong. We can assume that if there's a revival happening that, oh, it must, that must be made up, contrived. And I would say, be careful of that. Because the reality is, is God desires to be on the move. God desires to take good men and create good times. And I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus is coming back. But I also believe that until he does, there is still room for revival. There is still room for repentance. You don't believe me? God's word says this in 2 Peter 3, verses 9 and 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slow this. He is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We're still in that season. That season hasn't ended. The reason that the line of the tribe of Judah has not come and consumed all of his adversaries is because there is still a time for grace. There is still a time for preaching. There is still a time for repenting. It is time for people like James to shout, and if it costs you your life, you just keep going. 
It's a time for the church to get on fire. It's a time for many of us in here who lack commitment to get committed. It's a time for us to be bold and passionate. Why? Because there are many who need repentance. And there's many of us who are weak-hearted, weak in faith, and never say anything that are leading people astray because they believe that the gospel is boring, dull, and without knowledge. And it doesn't have to be that way. And it says in verse 10, because the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done, it will all be exposed. Friends, it is coming and we're not there yet, which means there is still work for us to do. And listen, we're not gonna accomplish the purpose of God if we're all stuffy. And we all think, you know what? I grew up this way and I got to stay this way. No, like discover God's word. Discover what he says. Seek to be aligned with him. The king is coming. He will judge judiciously. Which means I don't have to be the judge. It doesn't mean I'm foolish. And it doesn't mean that the decisions I make are without knowledge or they lack discernment. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this, I think the church should be more free to see God move and respond than sometimes we make him be. And we should be free to be the church because there is coming a day where our faith may cost us something. The days that James experienced could easily be upon us soon. That's not prophetic. The reality is, is that it just is trending that way. And this is a great time for us to plead for God to move and respond. It's a great time for us to recognize that we're living in bad times and we need some really good men to create something different. Why not now? Why not you? Why not me? Because God is still in the same reason and season that he was many years ago. And that reason and season hasn't ended yet. So as a result of that, I'm like, I don't see why people couldn't respond to the grace of God in repentance and come to know him. And I don't see why I shouldn't be the one sharing how beautiful are the feet who bring good news. Lord, would you help us to bring good news? So let me just close with this. We're gonna show our generosity in a couple of weeks and I pray that you'll be a part of it. Um, that's not for any uh, that's not for any, um, anything other than just our generosity to people who are in need. Um, the second thing is this. I've been challenging you in this room to think about who needs to know the hope of Jesus. Have you sent a text to anybody? Have you called anybody? Have you set up a lunch with anybody? Listen, this challenge is not going away. You're not gonna stop hearing about it. This year, I'm asking you that you would commit to see one person who does not know Jesus come to know Jesus because of you this year. If you know how to share them, you know where to bring them. But this year, like one person who doesn't know Jesus needs to be entered into the kingdom of God because of your, because of your fiery pursuit, because of your persistence, because of your prayer. Will you join us in that? Men, just real quick, a great opportunity is next week, we have our fin, feather, and fur. Maybe like, I wasn't planning on going. I will plan to go. But more than that, plan to bring one person with you. What a great opportunity for them to hear the kindness of God next week and eat good food. 
it's kind of a no pressure deal, honestly. Like you can bring them, know that it's going to be excellent. And then more than that, there's going to be a chance for them to respond to the kindness of God. Seems like a win, win, win to me. And an easy win at that. What a great ask. Don't miss it. I love you, church. Man, what a pleasure it is to serve alongside of you. May the Lord help us to have a zeal for him and others, a zeal that is thought out and self-controlled, but a zeal that also doesn't forget the reason, the season that we exist. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and your message of hope. May you teach us to walk in your ways, humbly, kindly, with thoughtfulness and with generosity. Lord, the most generous thing we can do is not give somebody a dollar. The most generous thing we can do is tell somebody who doesn't know you how to know you. Lord, would you help us to excel in generosity by sharing the fact that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what's been done to you, there's a God in heaven who loves you and he desires a relationship with you. And I pray that we would share that with others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.